continuing our lessons that we've started on the foundations of our faith, the fundamentals. We're going to be looking this morning on God's plan to save man. And our text for this will be John 3, Romans 5, and Hebrews chapter 10. So while they're passing that out, I'll go ahead and start. We'll read from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say unto you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we're going to start discussing this conversation. We look at this, we understand there are certain things that are obvious. When we go out this time of year, we look, the sky is blue, right? It's obvious. So it is with Scripture. When we look into the spiritual realm, the students of the Bible recognize that God had a plan for mankind and for mankind's behavior. God did not create man and then abandon him here on earth. God created man and then God had a plan and God has instituted that plan. And as part of this, he expects his followers to live in a manner that reflects his holiness. And as such, we as Christians... We do the best that we can each day to live in accordance with God's plan in the scriptures. As people, we may take vacations from our profession, our job. We may head to the beach. We may go to the mountains. We may even take, as hard as it is, I'm sure, vacations from our retirement and go to these places. It's probably difficult to, uh, when you're retired to get up and go somewhere else, isn't it? But... We have to understand, we have to realize also, we've talked about this before, we cannot take vacations from Christianity. 
When we became a Christian, we made a commitment to God. God, we know, will hold up his end of that commitment, and he expects us to hold up ours. And as Christians, we will do that throughout this lifetime. We don't have days when we don't act like Christians. We can't go out Monday through Saturday and act any way we want to act, and then come again on Sunday dressed in our best, with our best attitude, and play Christian on Sunday. And then go out again and do the same thing the next week and the next week and expect that God is going to have mercy upon us and save us. God has a plan. God has given us direction and he expects us to follow that. And if we fail to do that, then unfortunately there are going to be consequences for that. So Christianity is something that is a lifelong commitment. And if it's not something that you intend to do for the rest of your life, you need to seriously consider your decisions. God wants us to avoid sinful thoughts and sinful actions. We need to remember that rather than living according to our desires, our behavior should be guided by the plan that God has. We must remember Christianity is about Christ. It's not about us. This is where many often have trouble. Sinful thoughts, of course, lead to sinful actions. I would talk about controlling our tongue. But in addition to that, we must control our mind, our thoughts. The things that we fill our mind with are those things that we're going to act upon. We must remember that we were bought with a price. We no longer live for ourselves or for our desires. We are to please our Savior Too many people in this world are concerned with their happiness and not with the happiness of Christ. When you talk to people, a lot of times you'll get the comment, well, wouldn't God want me to be happy? Well, yes, God wants you to be happy, but God understands the laws that he laid down, the commandments that he has given to us are what will make us happy. Is the person who goes out on Saturday night and spends all night drinking and gets up Sunday morning with an intense hangover, is he happy? Not really. He may have been happy that Saturday night when he was getting to that point, but the next day and the rest of that week, he's probably not that happy. God does want us to be happy, but God knows what's best for us. And that's what he's given us. And when we follow that, that's when we can truly be happy. We don't have those regrets. We don't commit those mistakes as much. Whether because of weakness, ignorance, or rebellion, though, we often do sin. Nobody's perfect, right? The critics of people who are outside religion always point to the fact that people who are religious still sin. Yes, we do. It's not that we will never, ever sin. If we could live a life and never sin, there would be no need for the sacrifice that Jesus gave, right? That sacrifice was to forgive us of those sins. He knew that we're not going to be perfect. But 
the goal is to strive to do our best to be perfect. We're not going to make it every time. But we do our best. We don't go out and intentionally do these things. When we talk about weakness, we understand that we all have weaknesses which make us subject to temptation. We will read that in Proverbs 19 and verse 2. Ignorance, we sin because we do not know. And unfortunately, we do not know because we do not learn. We can read about that in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 and Jeremiah 6 and 15. A lot of times we let the needs and the actions of this life interfere with our spiritual life. And we get too involved in all the physical things in this material world and we don't take time to stop and study and learn. But we need to try to set a time, if at all possible, to do study in the scriptures, to try to learn more. Every year we want to know more than we knew the year previously. We want to be able to understand those more difficult passages. And in rebellion, we rebel because we turn away from God. And unfortunately, we turn away from God because we do not love God. If you love someone, if you have a spouse, if you have a child, and they're in need... Are you going to turn away from it? Of course you wouldn't, would you? You would do whatever you could, whatever in your power to help that spouse or that child. But yet we often turn away from God. Who the scripture tells us should, be, should mean even more than our family. Our family is wonderful. And we all love our families. But we also have to remember that no one in our family gave their life to forgive us of our sins. So we owe to Christ these things. We recognize that sin separates us from God and God made provision so that we might be reconciled to him. But this does not mean <clears throat> that God overlooks or encourages man's sinful behavior. We studied before in a lesson, and I think David went over again last week, the idea of that God has always had a plan for the salvation of mankind. Before this world was created, God was already working on that plan for the salvation of mankind. We look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So God recognized that we were going to sin. We understand that. This plan of God is revealed in Scripture, and we must make an effort to learn about it. As we learn about it, we will grow in appreciation for the wonderful love that God has for us. Even though we do not deserve his mercy, he willingly sent his son to pay the price for our sins. Something that we hear about, we understand, but probably don't think about all that much. This idea of giving for us. 
Would it be difficult for you to give your life for someone else? No comments? That's often the case in someone who's close to us, someone that we love. We would probably offer our life for them in the situation where it was required, right? It would be hard to give your life for someone that hates you. Yeah, difficult to give your life for someone who hated you, yes. Okay, now along that line, we talked about a mother giving a life for a child if it came to that. But let's go a little deeper, a little harder. How difficult it would be for that mother to give that child's life for someone else. Now it begins to strike home, doesn't it? But that's what God did. was the only one that was perfect. We work as best we can. <laughs> and we understand that when we sin, we deserve death. We've gone over that numerous times. That death coming from the idea of separation. So when we sin, there is a spiritual death. We are separated from God. Since God can't be associated with sin and we have sin, then we're separated from him. But we don't have to die for our sins, but that's only because someone stepped in and died for us to pay that price. When we look at the idea of justice, justice is, I guess, a recompense equal, right? When some sin is committed, then there has to be a price paid to cover that sin. If that sin then in essence, commits death, a separation, then there has to be a death to pay for that. Christ paid that price for us. We understand that we can't pay that price ourselves, right? We've discussed this before, too. If we sin, we can offer to give our lives for our sin, but we die in a sinful state. Therefore, we can't be saved. But Christ has stepped in and taken that burden for us and paid that price for us so that we don't have to do that. Because of this, we do not suffer the consequences of our sins, but at the same time, we see in Romans 6, 1 and 2 that we can't continue in sin either. If we're going to truly live the Christian life, we're going to try to do the best that we can, as we just talked about, that means that we can't continue in those sins, right? If we continue in those sins, 
we're not doing the best that we can. We have to get out of that. That's what repentance is about, right? Being able to turn away from those sins. Leave those things behind and move on to things that are better. So when we look here at John chapter 3 and the discussion that we're talking about in this section of the scripture, Christ discusses his impending death on the cross. And in this, we're going to look at verse 16, which is probably one of the most misunderstood verses that are in scripture. Many don't realize that this verse in John 3, 16 is, a st- is not a standalone verse. It's taken that way, but it's not. It's part of a conversation that Jesus has had with, had with Nicodemus that started in verses 1 and 2 that we read. Jesus mentions matters concerning the new birth, and Nicodemus asks for clarification. And in this, we read, Jesus responds, Are you not a teacher of Israel? But yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We saw in verses 10 through 12. So Nicodemus was, in all indications, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the religious leaders of Israel at the time. And Christ is looking to him and saying, you are a teacher. You are a leader of Israel. How is it that you can't understand these things? You should have already known these things. If you were really a leader of Israel, you should have been studying. You should have been learning. You should have been looking for the Messiah. And you should have known these things were coming about. But you don't. Okay, so let's move forward. Let's apply that today. Who are the religious teachers today? Christians. Christians. Is not every Christian a priest? What is the job of a priest? To teach God's word, right? We can't sit back and allow others to do these things. Right? In his case, Nicodemus appears to have accepted the religious teaching of the day instead of learning what God had intended. Many do this today. How do we teach if we don't learn? Do we conform to God's way or do we wish to worship in our own way? We're fortunate in this country we have something that a lot of other countries don't have because the men who started our country were very, very concerned about it. We have in the Constitution the freedom of religion. It guarantees us the ability to worship the Lord, but at the same time, although this is probably one of the greatest things that's in the Constitution Constitution as far as we're concerned, we need to understand that this is an American Ideal. It's a concept that was come up with, with our leaders that has helped us throughout the years. But we do need to understand that this is not an ideal from God. Right? When we read the scriptures from beginning to end, God talks about things and how he wants people to do things. And we have to understand that we are obligated to do things 
God's way, not our way. Freedom of religion is wonderful in the fact that we can practice just as we're doing here today and not have to worry about any harm coming to us. But freedom of religion doesn't mean that we can worship God in any way we want to do it. We have to worship God in the way that God instructed us to do it. When you read examples in the Old Testament about people who had changed things, right? Had done things differently from what God's direction was. And a lot of times the consequences were not good. We have to learn what God wants us to do and then we have to apply that. We have to follow the rules that he has set. Nicodemus, because of his background in the Jewish religion, had difficulty accepting these matters that Jesus was presenting. <clears throat> Probably sounds strange, but we must remember that some of the leaders were not as interested in pleasing God as they were in pleasing themselves at the time. We talked before about the, that Christ came in the fullness of time. Christ came at a time when he could do the best and give the greatest glory to God and usually that is when things are at their worst, right? And that's how it was with the Jewish people at this time. The Jewish government was set up such that religion and the government were combined. Unfortunately, what happens sometimes when you do that is when you get corrupt leaders, they now occupy the religious positions also. So the corruption spreads. They were looking for a worldly kingdom. They weren't looking for a religious, a spiritual kingdom. They were looking for one that they could serve high places with much wealth and much fame. That's what they were looking for. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be the preeminent... Uh, I can't talk. Sorry. They wanted to be the, <laughs> the greatest kingdom of the world in their lifetime. That's what they were looking for. And then on top of that, they wanted to be in those high places in that kingdom. They wanted the wealth, they wanted the power, they wanted the fame. When Christ came and that didn't happen, they didn't want to accept it. Nicodemus could not understand or would not accept something as simple as baptism. We still see that today. Very, very simple thing, but rejected by so many people. How could he understand or accept the concept of Christ's church, the joining of both Jew and Gentile through the church, and God's ultimate plan of salvation, if he could not understand the simple act of baptism? That's what Christ is telling me. You can't accept the physical things. You can't understand these worldly things I'm talking to you about. Taking someone and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you can't understand that or you can't accept that, how can you accept the concept of the church? But remember at this time, the Israelite nation had been pulled out from the world, right? They had a separate governance. They did not associate with Gentiles. This had been going on for approximately 1,400 years. And now Christ comes in and says, all of that's done away with. All of mankind is going to come together in this church. 
all men are going to be saved through the sacrifice that I'm going to make. If you can't understand this, how can you understand that? So that's what Christ is asking him. <clears throat> Many today still cannot accept these concepts and it still prevents men from living the Christian life that God demands. We still have many religions today that do not accept Christ in the world. We have many religions today who accept Christ but will not accept baptism. But all these things are laid out plainly in the scriptures. Baptism doth also now save us. How can you misunderstand this? So here's is Jesus introducing that plan of salvation, right? How that's going to work. He included the fact that his own death would come. Jesus compares it to the event that occurred during the Israelites wandering the wilderness. We read in Numbers 21 about the people acting out against God, and God sent fiery serpents among them. Right? They were bitten, and people would die. And Moses prayed, and God said, okay, go take a bronze servant, put it up in the middle of the camp, and if anyone's bitten and they look upon the servant, then they'll be saved, right? Okay? How specific is that? Very, right? So, if as an Israelite, I'm bitten, I'm not feeling well, I'm laying in my tent, I know the bronze serpent is that direction, I look that way, but I can't see it, am I going to be saved? No. Right? That's not what God said. God said you have to go look upon that serpent. That's how you be saved. So I can't almost do it. Right? It doesn't work that way with God. The serpent that we're talking about here was really a foretelling of what would come with the Messiah. Christ talked about being lifted up from the earth. Right? This was a concept out of their history that in some degree I guess they overlooked because this was a foretelling of what was going to happen with Christ. This was a clue, right, to identifying the Messiah. He was going to be lifted up just as that serpent was in the desert. To look upon the serpent was to be saved. To look upon Christ and believe and obey him is to be saved. But yet they didn't understand that. They didn't get that. He mentions this to Nicodemus to signify that he would die on the cross for all mankind. His death would enable those who submit to him in faithful obedience to be saved, just as those who obey in the wilderness were saved. Okay. Coming down now to verse 316, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so let's, we've looked at this chapter. We've read down through verse 17. At the beginning of this chapter, what are we discussing? Christ and Nicodemus are there together. What are they talking about? What? Rebirth? New birth? What is this? Baptism, right? 
So, above verse 16 in John chapter 3, we're discussing baptism. Okay? Now, they talk about it a little more. Christ telling him more information down through verse 21. <clears throat> and then verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anian near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming to him to be baptized. Okay. So, verse John 3, verse 1 through 15, we're discussing baptism between Christ and Nicodemus, right? Okay. Now, below verse 16... What's discussed here? What did we just read? Talks about Christ, right? Doing what? And his disciples. Baptizing. John the Baptist was doing what? Baptizing. So we have a chapter that talks about baptism here. And it talks about baptism here. But people want to go in the middle of two discussions about baptism and pull out one verse and say baptism is not essential. How much more out of context could you take this verse? From verse 1 down through verse 22, it's discussing baptism. But I want to pull verse 16 out of the middle of all that and say, right here, baptism is not essential. This whole chapter is about baptism. But yet so many people want to pull this one verse out and try to prove that. This actually proves the opposite. The chapter discusses nothing but baptism. Many people will pull the single verse out between the two discussions regarding baptism, try to prove baptism is not necessary. Um, we have to remember that when we're looking at verses, we do not take a single verse out, right? We have to look at that verse in the context in which it's written. We have to read above and below. We have to understand. And we have to know that that verse is going to be in context with what is surrounding it and with the entire Bible in general. Right? There are no contradictions in the Bible. The word for love used here is not the word phileo, which is the feelings, the instinct, the warm feeling that we have inside but the word agapo, agapo I'm not Greek so but the love of the mind or the will calculated disposition of regard and devout predisposition in other words an act of will rather than an emotion or infatuation and defined in terms of its results okay that's what it's talking about when we're reading 3.16, it talks about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? Those that believe on him. It's talking here about our act of will and the result that comes from that. Right. True. If you're not following Christ and doing what Christ commands of us, then how do you believe? When we, we look at these things, I've taken 
some of these and trace back through Sean's concordance. And as you look through that, the word that you're looking at, like in this case believe, will lead to another word that it originated from, and a word that that one originated from, and you can follow this back. And when you look at a lot of these terms in here that are used to say believe, when you go down two or three different layers, what does that word that all these originated from mean? Obey. The Bible's telling us that when you believe, it's telling us that when you obey. Now, I have a very difficult time with the discussions that we've just had on here with some of what the religious world teaches. Because if the only thing that matters is if I believe, then I can believe that Christ is the Son of God, and I can believe that Christ has the power to save me from my sins, I can believe that he died on the cross for me, but I can go out and live my life any way I want to live. Because I can still believe this. Right? I'm just not following it. But if I live that kind of life, even though I believe who Christ was, do you really think God the Father is going to accept me into heaven? Right. Even the demons believe, right? That they're not saved. So there's got to be more than just belief. But this verse really shows that the fact that the death of Jesus, Jesus would occur because of the immense love that God possessed for all humanity. The Father loves us so much, he would allow his son to die so that we would not have to. And that's all due to the fact that the sins that we commit. So what the verse is trying to explain to us is not that we have to just believe. What the verse is trying to explain to us is that God loves us so much that he allowed Christ to die in our place. That's what the verse is about. Okay. All right, we've got two minutes. So we're not going to dive into the next section yet. We'll go on to next week on that. Um, so are there any comments or any questions or anything? Because we have a couple more minutes. Right, they take it as a physical act. Right, but baptism is much more than a physical act. And I'm not... I'm, I don't understand that. Right, I'll have to look at the verse, but they get hung up on the fact that it being a work. But the Bible tells us, specifically in Scripture, baptism is a work of God, not a work of man. And it's not that they're not sincere. I mean, there are people in all kinds of religions in the world, all kinds of denominations in this country, they're very, very sincere in their belief. And they really do try to do the best as they know how. But unfortunately, somewhere along the lines, they were misguided. And we talked about that last lesson, I believe, where the fact that someone in the family can go astray and then all the generations following it begin to go astray 
because of what that one person did. So one person can get into a false religion and lead their family into that false religion and it can go on for generation and generation and generation. Right. And that their families into it and, and then the uh, Israelites went up with idol worship and then uh, as a response to that God had them in sleep. Two ways there. You can you can either alter God's commands by bringing something in that shouldn't be there, or leaving out something that should be there. And we see that in the religious world today. Yeah, thank, you. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you very much.